began writing this paper, um, I was struggling a little bit initially to try and fit my research within the medical activism theme. But then, as I started writing and getting a little bit more about patient engagement and the equality of care, um, I realised that the, the 1845 Lunacy Act was this big central piece of legislation that my work touches upon a lot. Um, and it was the first time that um, mental health was treated in specific institutions. So it was a big change. And then this is what led me um, on to looking at the um, Gallons Lunatic Asylum, which used to be the county institution for Cumbria. Now, um, my focus has been specifically on the patients, how they came in the asylum, and how they came to be increasingly moved out. I've studied a call patient sample, which is focused on mapping their institutional lives in order to create a picture of the transitory nature of mental health provision in the late 19th century. When patients were admitted to an asylum, it wasn't guaranteed that they would stay there. For many reasons, patients were increasingly circulated to different institutions of the poor law, most prominently workhouses and also other establishments. Through this paper, I'll look at the main facilitator of this transfer of care and examine some of the consequences. In addition, I'll also look at how patients engage with the asylum regime to show how they can also impact the quality of care being received. So I'll begin by giving a brief background of the asylum and the context um, in which it was built. So the 1845 Lunacy Act stated that all counties and boroughs in England and Wales had to construct their own lunatic institution that catered for paupers. Some already had their own, but most didn't. Therefore, asylum construction was particularly accelerated in the latter half of the 19th century and resulted in a large influx of patients into the county institutions. The asylum I researched was the, cal the county asylum that catered for paupers of Cumberland and Westmoreland, now known as Cumbria. It became known as Garland's Lunatic Asylum, named after the estate it was built on, and I'll refer to it as Garland's throughout the paper. Garland's was opened in January 1862, which is a lot later than the legislation and in fact was one of the last counties to provide its own institution. Originally, it catered for 200 pauper patients, 100 of each gender, but it soon became clear that this would not be enough, and overcrowding came to be an unrelenting feature of asylum life. So this graph shows the rise in number of patients in the initial 40-year period that Garland was open. As early as 1863, one year after opening, the Committee of Visitors stated of Garland's that they are unable to provide sufficient accommodation therein for the number of lunatics who are chargeable to the two counties. So on the graph, the, um, the red lines indicate every time that the capacity was reached and the numbers of the capacity each time. So extensions um, had to be approved by the Committee of Visitors and had to be financed by the two counties. Gardens was extended six times during the period of this graph, taking the patient capacity from 200 to 660. By 1914, following further extensions, the number of patients had grown to almost 900. Owing to overcrowding, admissions to the asylum had to be constantly refused or transferred elsewhere. In 1865, 22 patients had to be boarded out to Dunstan Lodge private asylum in Gateshead, which is around 60 miles away, and two female patients were forced to sleep in a lavatory. What also occurred to alleviate pressure on asylum beds was that patients that were deemed harmless to themselves and others were transferred to nearby workhouses. This movement of patients had formed a main aspect of my research and the effect on the patients was often detrimental. Lower standards of care received in wards of the workhouse could worsen the condition of even the quietest patients. The adverse effect of such circulation didn't go unnoticed by the asylum doctors. 
Medical Superintendent Dr. Farquhar said, noted in 1901 that the plan that has hitherto been adopted for keeping vacancies for fresh cases by periodically sending out chronic harmless cases to the workhouses in the two counties meets only with partial success. A considerable proportion of these cases sooner or later came back to the asylum, about 25% during the last 10 years. The mere fact that cases do well and give no trouble as long as they are in the asylum apparently became unmanageable when sent to the workhouse, shows that skilled supervision and appropriate management are necessary to keep such cases quiescent. Although the asylum doctors were aware of the problems of circulation, patients continued to be siphoned out to workhouses and to other lunatic institutions to receive care. Therefore, overcrowding impacted the quali quality of treatment and offering the asylum. The substandard le levels of care offered in workhouses would widely acknowledged, but the issue of overcrowding was so unrelenting that little was done to fully address the problem. Once cases deemed suitable had been transferred to workhouse wards, the problem didn't end there. As noted in a report in the West Cumberland Times in 1899, there had been some imbeciles set from garlands and the small room at the workhouse was very much overcrowded. Removal from the asylum more often than not saw patients readmitted some weeks or months later. One example of this is Edward E, pictured here, who was admitted to Garlands on three separate occasions between 1896 and 1908. Due to the constraints of overcrowding, each time he was discharged from Garland as unrecovered to Whitehaven Workhouse. Throughout each of his treatments at Garlands, he was described as quiet and unobtrusive and was regularly employed without protestation. On each occasion he returned to Garlands from the workhouse, his condition had worsened. When he was first admitted to the asylum in 1896, he was not described as dangerous, whereas on readmission in 1906, he was noted as having attacked fellow workhouse inmates and was described as dangerous. Therefore, the lower standard of treatment in the workhouse had worsened Edward's condition and made him violent. On his final bout of treatment in Garlands, Edward's health deteriorated rapidly and after only four months, he died in June 1908. For those who remained in the asylum, overcrowding also brought risks, as an increase in numbers was not always met by a greater number of staff. For instance, despite the extensions made only three years previous, in 1887, the attendant to patient ratio stood at 1 to 15.5 for the males and 1 to 14 for the females, which the commissioners in lunacy noted not to be very, very numer numerically strong. The recommended ratio was 1 to 10. Staff negligence could have adverse effects on the care administered. Continually in the annual reports, there are accounts of injuries suffered by patients which could, be, could have been avoided through increased staffing and attention. For instance, in 1865, a male paralytic patient was scalded by an attendant after being placed in a bath which was too hot. The burns induced an epileptic fit from which he sub subsequently died. The attendant was struck off the asylum books and an inquest into the incident which brought negative attention to Garland's from lunacy commissioners who asked serious questions of the stance of care being delivered. This occurred at a time when the asylum was particularly overcrowded. The capacity of the institution stood at 200, but by the end of 1865, there were 239 residents. Thus, the increase in the number of patients put pressure on the attendants, which resulted in them compromising the standard of care being delivered, and in this case, the result was fatal. Another consequence of overcrowding was the increased risk of disease. Dr. Farquharson reported in 1903 that the reason for the increase in the number of deaths of TB was probably the overcrowding of the asylum and the absence of proper means of segregating patients with tubercular disease have contributed to the increased amount of this disease. 
the deaths attributable to TB amounted to 20.8%, whereas the average for other English asylums in 1904 was 17.5. Not until 1907 were two new hospital blocks completed, each able to accommodate 76 patients of each gender. To alleviate the hypersensitive deaths in TB, the new hospital blocks were provided with shut-off wards for tuberculosis cases, which since 1906 accounted for 24% of deaths in the asylum. Overcrowding also had implications for the welfare of staff. In December 1987, Dr John Campbell, the superintendent from 1873 to 1898, published an article in The Lancet entitled The Hardships and Risks of the Medical Profession and Those Engaged in the Treatment and Bodily Mental Disease. Campbell stated the physical injuries common to the asylum profession due to the unpredictable nature of patients and that these are seldom thought of by the public. He makes the vulnerability of the profession clear by listing some of the injuries and threats he had experienced. I have been attacked by a patient with a scythe, by a patient with a knife, by a man who went to the back door with a stone in his hand and smashed my front teeth. Violence to staff was a common aspect of patient agency. For instance, in the case notes of David N, admitted in 1889, it was recorded that, today he struck forcibly attendant Irvin as he was passing him. It is also worth noting that overcrowding impacted the availability of space in the asylum for private patients. Now, from the beginning, Garland's was. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, from the beginning, Garland's was a pauper institution, but six years after opening in 1868, they began accepting fee paid private patients. The main reason was money to utilise the spare beds from the subsequent um, extensions. And private patients were admitted at a higher rate of 14 shillings a week. Um, poor patients were charged to local poor law unions between 8 to 9 shillings a week. But they stated from the beginning that in times of overcrowding, the private patients will be the first to be forfeited and moved out to give space to poor patients. But priorities did change. So if we go back to the graph, this second, this last extension from 620 to 660, that was specifically a ward for private patients, and that was the first time they gave them um, specific ward um, and different provision. Before they'd just been lumped in with paupers and there was a bit of an alcohol, so that's when they give them specific, um, specific, specific provision, and, and the main reason was money. Um, so um, this was based on the fact that during um, the decade 1883 to 1893, the income for private patients had amounted to £5,200, and the lunacy commissioners wanted to increase it. So private patients were given their own accommodation. Cumberland House was added in 1896, and Westland House opened in 1900 for a further 12, 24 patients. And now despite the stretched resources in pauper wards, so it's worth noting that Edward Eaton, I mentioned before, he was shifted out in this period when they were extended for the private patients, but the pauper side was grossly overcrowded still. So this demonstrates another aspect of the inequality of care received in an asylum that was meant to be for paupers. So this next part of the paper, I'm going to examine the impact that patient engagement could also have on the quality of treatment. Garlands, as other asylums of the era, operated a, a regime of moral treatment, which was structured around a routine of a nourishing diet, regular exercise and useful employment. Patients were employed in the tasks to help the day-to-day -day upkeep of the institution. Typically, males would carry out labour and activities, and women would be employed in domestic tasks. Dr. Clouston stipulated that 
regular work for both body and mind will do much to counteract the ill effects of the associations of the persons, places and circumstances that were connected with the original outbreak of malady. The employment of patients became criteria on which assigns were assessed by the commissioners in lunacy. Their annual reports included how many patients they observed to be employed and in which tasks. The more patients who were usefully occupied, the better treatment offered by the institution, as they were demonstrating their ability to be a productive member of society. For instance, in 1866, the commissioners noted that in Garlands, about 108 of the men work on the land or at trades, and assisting in the wards of the women, between 60 and 70 are regularly employed in the kitchen and laundry, or in needlework and household duties. The Garlands casebooks provide numerous examples of patients who engaged and responded well to the moral regime. For instance, Catherine B seemed to forget her, medical, her mental condition at the weekly dance. In April 1885, it was reported in their case notes, wanders about the ward moaning and groaning wretchedly. The only occasion in which she appears to forget her troubles is at the weekly dance, when she brightens up wonderfully, laughs heartily and industriously goes around the hall, labouring hard, often to teach others the steps and educate her fellow patients who require it. But engagement in the assigned routine was crucial to the successful management of the institution particularly as attendants had to look after such a large number of patients. However, patient, patients could deviate from this, as was the case for John A, who at bedtime was noted to rush out of his room when night attendant opened his door to look at him, and it took three attendants to take him back. Another instance is that of Archibald P, who was sent to work in the tailor shop in January 1890 as a means of being employed during his treatment. However, his reluctance to engage with tailoring resulted in him being sent to work outdoors, as he was lazy and disinclined to, <coughs> to learn in the tailor shop. Patients could also react adversely when aspects of the regime failed to be delivered. An entry for a male patient who was present in Garland since its opening portrays the importance trips outside the asylum had to the inmates. Today, about 11 o'clock, this patient feeling slighted at not being allowed to go to the asylum and <coughs> opinion suddenly struck his hand through a pane of glass, cutting it severely. Similarly, patients could display strong desires to harm themselves. For example, Henry Kay, who was admitted in 1875, noted as a most difficult patient to manage, as he was restless, excitable, vicious, and given to breaking glass. On one occasion, he jumped through the plate glass door in number one ward without any warning. He severely cut the palm of his right hand, his left forearm, exposing the radius. Measures then had to be taken to prevent him removing the dresses from the wound, which called into question the moral nature of treatment. Mechanical restraint was, was utilised for violent patients that posed a threat to themselves or others. Typically, this was administered using a straitjacket or a similar device called a poker, which had detachable sleeves. A register was kept to record instances of patients being mechanically restrained or secluded in individual locked rooms. These were inspected annually by the Commissioners of Lunacy and in Henry's case, he had to be restrained to prevent him removing the bandages and preventing the wound healing. Chemical restraint became increasingly common as the number of unruly patients was not met by an increase in staff. Medicines were administered to restrain patients and was widely accepted by the commissioners and lunacy as a medical treatment. For instance, John F. was admitted in an excited state and he could not be kept still. He was administered potassium bromide thrice daily, which was noted to make him much quieter and more subdued. Great importance was placed upon the value of asylum patients receiving a good diet. Therefore, cases which refused nourishment posed significant problems for doctors. 
Edith N was admitted to Garland's in 1903, suffering from melancholia. She was noted as being dull and morose and took little interest in things. A few days before our mission, it was recorded that she had asked her uncle to cut her throat for her and she refused food altogether. This refusal continued when in Garland's causing issues for the staff who wished to provide her with nourishment. The brutal adoption of force feeding by the stomach pump went against the abandonment of brutal punishment. However, as a means of nourishment, the practice was used frequently in asylums. The restraint of patients in this way signalled a return to the employment of physical force to coerce them into conforming, which calls into question the effectiveness of moral treatment when faced with instances of patient deviance. Deviant patients were also subject to certain treatments, which seemed somewhat barbaric and misplaced. Blistering was used to induce patients so was induced in patients suffering from particular accelerated forms of mania and excitement, usually displaying violence and using profound language. A blistering fluid was applied to the front, top, or back of the head to create blisters. It was believed that by causing pain elsewhere on the body, the mental anguish causing the person's, di person's disruptive behaviour would be soothed. One example was Maria S, admitted in March 1893. She suffered from mania and was constantly excited, restless, shouting at the top of her voice, and was a disruptive influence in the wards, particularly at night. Six weeks after admission, it was stated in her case notes, as she has been almost continuously noisy for a long time, the front part of her head was today shaved and painted with blistering fluid. Despite receiving treatment on a regular basis, it was noted that it was having little effect. By September 1893, the method had failed to soothe Maria, but the assigned doctors, doctors continued to administer it. Therefore, the assigned regime depended on patients engaging with it. For those that didn't, they didn't receive an equal level of moral treatment. So to bring this together, there were many factors that resulted in the equality of care being received in the lunatic asylums of the late 19th century, a few of which I've touched upon here. The never-ending burden of overcrowding led to a transfer of care, and the poor patients that were moved from the asylum suffered as a result. What started out as an optimistic theatre for development of the relatively new field of psychiatry led to the creation of warehouses for chronically ill, unable to effectively treat the patients, as was the original intention. Pauper institutions increasingly accepted private patients, and as was the case for Garland, began to rely on their income thus creating a two-tiered system in an establishment intended to treat those in the highest amount for its care. Moral treatment was widely adopted in an attempt to move away from the shackling of the insane in madhouses to cure them in the new county asylums. However, this depended on the will and engagement of patients, and as we've seen, resistance resulted in a return to harsh punishments, which signalled an inequality of care. Treatment in the lunatic asylum was therefore not straightforward. This paper, and in my wider research, I've demonstrated that mental health provision in this period was not uniform or guaranteed. Thank you.